0: Stanford
1: University. I'm happy to be here today um, to talk to you a little bit about the work I've been doing. And the work I'll talk about today focuses primarily on academic engagement. However, I should say that my my research themes right now, my primary research interests right now, um, are perceptions of inequality. So this work will be, will touch on one um, consequence of my broader line of work on inequality and at the end um, we can talk about those interests if if, um, people would like to hear more about the broader um, ideas that I'm um, examining right now I should say also that I'm from the as um, Prudence mentioned I'm from the business school and in the business school we have a, a different dynamic than some other schools in the sense that when I give a talk I expect to be interrupted so if you don't interrupt me and ask me a question, I'll, I'll be a little bit concerned that either you're not paying attention or aren't interested. So <laughs> um, don't take it as a sign of, um, it, won't, it won't bother me, and in fact, I will be happy if you stop me and ask questions. Okay, so <clears throat> like I said before, my primary um, area of interest is inequality. Um, although I do have, I do have an, an interest in academic engagement, academic achievement, especially among minorities and women, um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, primarily, in the 80s, and if you don't know sh- that much about Chicago, um, when King was there, he said it was one of the toughest places to deal with um, the issue of race in the country, so, and that continued to be the case. So Chicago was still a highly segregated town, and so when I grew up, I went to a parochial school from kindergarten through third grade, and it was primarily African American. It was a great school, you know, I loved it, no issues with the school. And then um, we moved and I, went, I transferred to another school in a predominantly white neighborhood around fourth grade and things were different. Um, and so the school was still a relatively good school, but I was one of, I don't know, say five black students in the school. And my fourth grade year, I came home and I, I complained to my mother that this is a problem, right? So, I, I mean, there was just something, clearly something was wrong. And I felt as if no matter what I did, I was not going to be treated the same way that the white kids in school were treated. And I was upset about this. And um, my mom, who's a school teacher, by the way, so my mom taught school on the west side of Chicago primarily, um, which is predominantly black. And what she said to me was, um, that's just how it is. (laughs) She said that you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much recognition, and that's just the fact of it, and it's going to remain that way. And And that was it. That was her advice to me. <laughs> um, and so, what I'm gonna argue in part is that although at the time, and this is par for the course of my mom, it wasn't particularly comforting. So my mom, if, if you ever got the chance to meet my mom, she's not, she's a nice woman, but not particularly comforting. Um, <laughs> blunt and honest, yes, helpful sometimes, it doesn't seem, it's not so clear, but um, What I'm going to suggest today is that's exactly the right message, This exactly the message that I should have heard. And I'll I'll get into why I think that might be the case. And so there'll be two aspects of that story that are important. One is that even as a, in that, let's say, 10, 11-year-old, I was aware of the issue of race, and I was aware of not just the issue of race, but what it meant for me as a student, right? So I didn't necessarily articulate it in the way that I'll talk about it today, but it was obvious to me that race was meaningful in the context of education. And two, there was, uh, it was also the case, though, that I didn't know how to understand it. There were multiple ways that it could be understood, and that my mom, in essence, provided a frame for me to understand that. Again, not a comforting frame, but a frame nonetheless. She could have talked about it in different ways. She could explain to me my situation and what was going on in different ways. And I'm going to suggest that how she explained it, and more broadly how we talk about the nature of inequality, has an impact or influences how students respond to that inequality. So that students know that there's something out there, people can see it. It's not, it doesn't take um, scholarly work to see that there's something going on. And the question is, how do we make sense of that in part for students, and what consequence does that have for students' engagement? So that that will be um, what I'll I'll try to provide a bit of insight on um, as I go through the talk. So <clears throat> I'm a psychologist by training. So even though I'm in the business school, I'm a social psychologist. And so the way I think about the world and the way I'll approach this problem is, that, again, by focusing on individuals' experience of the so- their social environment. Okay? So how do people understand and represent, that is, make sense of their social environment? And in particular, what are the consequences of this for academic engagement? And so um, <clears throat> I'm sure you don't need to be told that there is... Um, disparities in race and education. So this is, I'll go through this relatively quickly, I assume most of you are, if you don't know the exact statistics, you're aware of these issues, that there remains a gap between white and blacks achievement. These are math scores, the gap between white and blacks from 1978 to 2004. This is the percentage of people that by race who received bachelor degrees or higher um, in 2008. Okay. And again you see that blacks and um, Latinos have to get um, have significantly less higher rates of um, graduation from post secondary education than do whites. Um, and this um, is the percentage of women in STEM professions, okay, in um, 2008. So this is evidence that not only, I'm, thus far I've talked mostly about ethnic minorities, but you also see similar issues with women in STEM fields, right? So science, technology, um, engineering, and math professions, women also have a recognize there's something about these environments that are not uh, that don't suggest that women belong there or suggest women don't perform well and this I'm gonna argue influences their participation alright um, <clears throat> so again what these these issues are obviously complex I'm gonna focus on um, one component um, that I think contributes to these yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah go ahead yeah well I don't have the exact I, I don't have the exact numbers but I can tell the general trends and I, I, I don't know most people may, may or may not be aware of this but um, the gender disparity in higher education for African-Americans is relatively large so um, bachelor degrees in general I believe that at, at this point um, two black women earn a graduate degree for every one black man um, whites in terms of bachelor degrees I believe are approaching parity um, and the disparity for Latinos is, I, d- I don't know how big it is, but it's closer to what you see for African Americans than for whites. And we can post
2: this on our website, if you're
1: willing. Y- yeah. So mm-hmm. We
2: can post this the, so you can get a closer look at
1: all of this. The right. So, and there's also, if you look at, um, you see, by the way, uh, some, like broad, bigger disparities um, in terms of, um, the white gap, white-black disparity, if you also look at technology fields as well. So it's not just women that tend not to do well in STEM professions, but ethnic think minorities as well. But yeah, so there, there is clearly a gender-by-ethnicity interaction, and I I do have some, um, I can talk about that a little bit more, but um, if it comes up again, let me know. I, I don't want to go into it too much here, because I don't have that much to say about that interaction. But if you're interested, then I can talk a bit about it in the context of um w- the genesis of ethnic um, inequality. I can make some claims about that but I'll I'll come back to that if you're interested. Okay so there's a a lot of work that seeks to explain these gaps so and some of it much of it actually is done here at Stanford so uh, again I'll assume that most of you are familiar with Claude Steele's work on stereotype threat that is the awareness that others might perceive you through the lens of your ethnicity or through your gender and judge you poorly creates um, a negative effect or negatively affects your performance. So that is, if you're a woman and you believe that women are negatively stereotyped in the domain of math, you're taking a math test, your awareness of that stereotype causes you anxiety and that anxiety undermines your performance. So that's one way you, could get, you can get these sorts of effects. Um, people also, in terms of ethnicity, um, some sociologists, primarily John Nagbu, um, has made claims that it's a cultural response to the environment, that we develop um, we develop oppositional identities to academics. We um, disidentify with our, we separate the academic identity from our ethnic identity and see them in opposition. And therefore, to remain, in essence, let's say black means to not focus on academic achievement. That's where we can we can also see these influences. But I'm going to um, focus on instead of of these problems, is the idea of engagement. Um, and I, and I mean a very particular thing by engagement here um, for the purpose of this talk I'm going to define engagement as the willingness to tie one's sense of self to the academic outcomes or um, abilities and by this I mean when you perform well or poorly in an academic domain or you think you're good or not so good in an academic domain what does it tell you about yourself that is how do you feel about yourself if you perform poorly on the math test does it affect how you feel about you about you, like your sense of self. And my argument is that to the extent that you tie your sense of self to performance in the domain, um, you should expect that, or you should expect that people who do this will be more persistent in that domain, be more motivated to perform well in that domain, because performance in that domain is seen as a way of understanding who they are, of valuing the self. Okay? And to the extent that you don't, tie your sense of self to a particular domain, you should be less persistent in the face of obstacles, you should be less interested in, in your abilities in those domains. It's just not, not a way that you define yourself and therefore you should see, you should see choices that reflect that. And so what I'm going to argue is that even though these disparities I've put up have multiple causes, some of these causes reflect choice, but I should be careful with that term because I don't mean choice, free choice, I mean choice is a function again of your understanding the environment in which you, you live in, an understanding of yourself. And what I'm going to talk about is how your perception of the environment affects your understanding of the self as, it's re- as it relates to academics and that that can have consequences for the types of choices that ethnic minorities and women make and for the types of, um, the amount of effort they may put into, into the academic domain. Okay. <coughs> All right, and uh, <coughs> and so the reason I think that academic engagement may be an interesting way to understand these disparities is is because there's good evidence that academic engagement varies across um, social groups. That is, research suggests very clearly that African-Americans, for example, are less likely to tie their sense of self to the academic outcomes than are whites. So when you look at studies that um, examine the relationship between self-reported GPA, so how how high is your GPA and self-esteem, for example, African-Americans show a weaker relationship between those two things than do whites. That is, for whites, the better their GPA, the better they feel about themselves. For African Americans, that that connection is not there. And we see a lot of, a number of studies provide evidence of this. So this is not um, a one study finding. This is well accepted in the literature, and in part, um, a number of the studies that seek to explain, at least in the the area of social psychology, the academic achievement gap, take for granted this difference in, in engagement. Okay, so when we think about the stereotype threat literature, for example, Disengagement in that literature is seen as a downstream consequence of poor performance as a function of stereotype threat. When you think about the acting white hypothesis, John Nagbu, the active um, um, disengagement is again assumed and is a, thought to be a cultural response to um, historical disparities. So, most of the work that on I would argue on the racial achievement gap takes for granted or assumes some degree of um, disparity in engagement as well. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. So do you mean that a low GPA doesn't impact your self-esteem or that a high GPA doesn't make Blacks feel better? Both. <laughs> that I, I'm saying that the relationship doesn't exist. So if they're doing poorly in school, they don't, they don't feel particularly bad about it. If they're doing well in school, it doesn't make them feel particularly good about themselves. I'm saying both. And are you gonna elaborate on that? Um, I will show you some studies from college students on that, yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that will be the primary focus of the empirical component of the talk, yes. yeah. Uh, just to
2: establish a context, can you say at what grade level that seems to be doing, or is it there
1: from the... <coughs> That's a good question. Um, I don't, the work I know on this is not developmental. Um, so the work I know is generally at high school and college. So I don't, I don't know, I would, I would certainly guess that it would begin sooner than that, but at, when it starts, I, 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 can't, I don't really have a good answer to that. my, my I would guess, and again this is a guess, I don't have the evidence on this, sometime in early elementary school. So, um, and I, I would be, I'm, I'm less, I'm more positive about women, because you get the same types of effects among women, and the evidence would, would suggest it probably happens around middle school for women. Yeah?
0: Brian, is there another domain in which you will see a positive?
1: self-concept and achievement in that domain for African-Americans and women? So for women, the only time you see this is is math and sciences. So it's not academics broadly for women. Um, And there are multiple domains. So my guess is domains in which they they think are representing themselves. So if you're an athlete, your athletic performance is going to affect your sense of your athletic ability, your athletic performance is going to affect your self-esteem. uh, I don't, so what I would say is it's not clear to me, like I don't have um, particular domains where I, there's been research that says like, this is where African Americans do identify, they're not identifying academics, they're identifying here, um, but certainly I, I would be, I'm very confident in saying there are going to be domains in which they do tie sense of self to their performance, and it's just not typically academics. Is there a question in the back there? Okay. Mhm. So yeah, and so there's also work by um, Osborne, there's a paper by Osborne in 1995 that that shows the same empirical work that shows the same kind of effect. So again, this is well established um, research. And I should say that I'm I'm going to challenge this in the, that what I just said, I'm going to challenge in a bit. Um, but I want to be clear that this is this is where I believe the literature is. There's good evidence for that, and I think that a lot of um, scholars take that as a starting point, right? That is what needs to be explained, and don't and and I think are not um, as cr- as skeptical as they should be of the existence of this effect to begin with, right? At the or the the depth of the effect. That's a better way to say it. Okay, so um, yeah. So again, academic engagement is, I think, a place to start because we know that it varies across groups in a way that's consistent with the achievement gap. So we know that the groups that tend to to fare poorly in domains also tend to be the groups that do not engage um, in in that domain, do not engage their sense of self in that domain. So again, the question is, is why? And I've already touched on a few answers that have been provided, so um, a cultural oppositional identity. Uh, Downstream Consequences of Poor Performance, and and that one, by the way, um, has a a corollary. So some people argue that the reason that groups that fare poorly don't engage is because they're they're trying to actively protect their self-esteem. Okay, So if I can expect to do poorly in this domain, then it makes sense, in terms of protecting my sense of self, to disengage. So when I do perform poorly, it doesn't make me feel bad about myself. And so that's a motivated argument. So people are purposefully... Separating the sense of self from the domain because they fear that poor performance is going to is going to hurt hurt their sense of self. Okay, so that's an argument that's presented, um, and that argument actually is is important because um, I'm going to I'm going to take that as a starting point, point. and so the the way that the, that argument is constructed, in in part is that um, there's this idea of attributional ambiguity. So this is the starting point for that argument. So people make that argument in social psychology start with this attributional ambiguity concept. and So the idea of attributional ambiguity is that sometimes you can't tell whether or not your outcomes are about you or about the environment. Right? Mm-hmm. So, if you are, so in a simple case, if you're a woman in a math, let's say you're a woman in a small math class, you have a male professor, you get your grades back, or in that class the professor seems not that interested in you, doesn't call on you very much it's unclear what that means. It's unclear if that's something about the professor's attitude towards you as a woman or if that is a reflection of your performance and ability in the class. And that ambiguity is what some some argue causes disengagement. And so here the disengagement is not not necessarily a motivated process. It really is a cognitive process in the sense that there's no reason for my self-esteem to be affected by something if I don't know that that something is about me. Does that make sense? So if you're a person who expects to be discriminated against um, or thinks, in, in, even on the positive side, there, and there's research on this too, you think that sometimes you get overly positive feedback because of your group membership that undermines your ability to trust that, that feedback is about the self and therefore that feedback doesn't affect how you feel about yourself. Okay, So again the idea is attributional ambiguity and, and, and that term just simply means You don't know what to attribute your outcomes to. There's ambiguity about what the cause of your outcomes are. Therefore, you're unwilling to tie those outcomes to yourself. Okay. Um, But the interesting thing about attributional ambiguity is that it should be um, this process shouldn't distinguish between people who are disadvantaged in a domain and people who are advantaged in a domain. Does that make sense? So if you, now you say there's a, a male student in the classroom and the professor s- seems to be lavishing attention on him, is always providing him with positive feedback. It, he should also be aware that it's possible that that's because he's a fabulous student, but it's also possible that that's because he's a man. And if he thought it was because he's a man, the attributional ambiguity argument goes, he should also disengage. Because in the attributional ambiguity argument, it's not motivated. right? It's not, you're not doing it because you're afraid you're going to feel bad about yourself, you're doing it because you can't be sure that the information you're receiving is about the self. Um, but that's not what people find. So what people find, okay. so what you, people find this, in this literature is that, um, <coughs> is that the more injustice minorities in general in academics and women and STEM fields see, the more injustice they believe exists in their dom- those domains, the less they engage. That is, the more they separate their sense of self from performance in that domain. But even when whites and men see injustice in a domain, they say it exists, there's no, it has no effect on their engagement. They still engage in that domain. Okay? And so what I'm going to um, try to suggest to you is that that says something about how people are perceiving the injustice. Right? The reason you only get the effect for minorities and women is because they have a, a perception of that injustice that says that their outcomes may not be about them. But men and whites, even though they perceive injustice, don't see that as having consequences for the relationship between their outcomes and their se- self. Yes? Is it, posi- is it possible that it's just
2: two things working together, but there's like a positivity effect among men or whites yeah. that's causing them to choose to perceive or unconsciously choose to perceive one mm-hmm. possible influence? So it's, it's still, the same,
1: um, still the same layout of options? Is yes. Mm-hmm. The because there's no motivation, right. right? That's certainly possible, yes. But I'm going to show you evidence that that's not what's happening. <laughs> 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 um, but yes, that that is possible. But I I, I don't think that's what's going on. Um, and so here's where I'm going to take a, a slight um, detour into my work on perceptions of inequality. And this is this will be relatively short, but it's necessary to understand why how I'm going to explain these differences in facts between minorities and whites and men and women. Okay, so in essence, the way social psychologists, <clears throat> and to some extent, and maybe less so now, sociologists, have thought about inequality, um, the, the focus of the, of, these, of the ideas of inequality has been on relative dif- differences, relative disparities. And by that I mean, um, you understand your place in the social hierarchy or in the world by comparing your place to the place of others. Right, so when I was a, a, a little black boy in Chicago going to school, I realized that there was a problem because I could see the whites were being treated differently than I was being treated and that was the nature of the problem I could see that difference and so the idea that it's a relative disparity means that um, I could see that either as I'm disadvantaged relative to the white kids in the class or the white kids are advantaged relative to me in the class and those are exactly the same because all it really matters is my position relative to those white students Does that make sense? so that's how um, theories of inequality have explain people's experience of inequality. So I should also say there's a distinction between the reality of the relative difference and people's experience. So I'm going to separate out the psychology from the reality. So it's true that my place can only be understood as as a fourth grade black student in the class. I can only understand my place relative to other students in that class. But that's not necessarily true about my experience of the inequality. Okay, so that's true about the nature of it, but not necessarily my experience of it. And what do I mean, I mean by that? What I'm, what I'm going to say is that even though in reality advantage and disadvantage are two sides of the same coin, it should not matter how you describe the inequality, but that people don't see the world in that way. That people do make a distinction between advantage and disadvantage, even when you describe the exact same inequality. And so this is an admittedly um, lo-fi demonstration, but this, it'll, it, it'll, it'll work. Um, So, I'm going to argue that individuals distinguish between advantage and disadvantage, and that some inequalities are more about you than others. Does that make sense? So, when I go into that classroom, I'm a black student sitting there, there's a question, even once I see the inequality, what I'm going to argue is there's a question about what the nature of that inequality is, right? How do I, what's the frame of that inequality? How should I understand what that inequality means about me? Right? So even though I see it, there's still an unanswered question, and what I'm going to argue, too, is that what my mother did in that story, what she did is she provided a frame for me. She told me what it meant for me. So even though I saw it, that wasn't enough. I needed to have a, a, a deeper understanding of what it meant for me, and, and in this, I'll show you in a second what I mean about that. So, by that, so imagine now, these are, let's think of it as a race. Okay, and this is the, these, so let's think of M as minorities and W as whites, and this is the start of the race. So let's just focus on the top panel first. And the whites at the beginning have an advantage. You could think of that as parental income, context in the community, whatever. They have advantages that have accumulated as a function of racial disparities in, in society, hysteri- historical disparities in American society. Um, and when you see that top panel and the bottom panel are exactly the same. Right, the d- relative difference between minorities and whites is the same in both panels. But I'm going to argue, what I'm going to suggest, though, is that people don't, can't make sense of this without another piece of information. That people need another piece of information, and what they want, in essence, is what I'm going to ta- call a reference point, right, or a standard. So when now, when you put in a starting line that does not exist in reality, there's no true starting line, but people imagine one, and that frames that inequality in a particular way. So now, what I see in that top panel. Is minorities are disadvantaged, but whites have exactly what they sh- they're where they should they should be. So that inequality in that top panel now is about minorities. And if you contrast that with the bottom panel, I'm going to argue that now what you see is that whites are advantaged and minorities have what they should. So now on this bottom panel, that inequality is about whites. So nothing. So again, this line does not truly exist. It's just a psychological frame that you use to make sense of the inequality. But I'm going to argue that there's a vast psychological difference between that top panel and the bottom panel. That even though the inequality, the, the, the true nature of the inequality has not shifted, and this is what, what I said before the nature of the inequality has not shifted, but the experience of it has. And it's that experience of the inequality that I'm going to argue t- that determines whether or not people engage. It's not the existence of the inequality. It's not the magnitude of the inequality. It's the experience of that inequality. What does that inequality mean for me that determines how people respond to it? Okay, so are there, are there any questions about that? So that's the end of the detour into this, this theory. And we can talk about other consequences of that if you'd like, but I'm going to use that to make sense of the, the data I'm going to describe next. So are we all any? Okay. All right. <coughs> Um, and so the way, how, does this, how does this affect engagement? What I'm going to argue is that when you think about inequality in terms of your group, that is if you are disadvantaged, if you're in the minority group or you're a woman in the STEM field, if you think about inequality in terms of disadvantage, that inequality is about you and now you're not sure if your outcomes are about you or not. Right? Now that inequality is about you, that creates the attributional ambiguity I was talking about earlier, you disengage. But if you're a man and you see that same inequality and you think it's about women, or if you're a white person you see that inequality You think it's about minorities, that inequality is not about you and therefore it has no bearing on your outcomes, you engage. In contrast, if you think about inequality in terms of advantage, either whites are being advantaged or men are being advantaged, now that inequality has less to do with minorities and, and, and women, so you should see them engaging even though they still recognize, and this goes to the question you're asking, they still recognize they're performing poorly, they're not confused about the nature of the world, the nature of inequality, just don't see it as about them, and then you see engagement because that eliminates the ambiguity in terms of are these outcomes about me or not. In contrast, if you're you're white or you're a man and you see uh, inequality as being your advantage, now there's ambiguity about whether or not your outcomes are about about you or about something else and you should see disengagement. So in essence I'm arguing that you should be able to turn engagement on and off simply by shifting the frame that people use to understand inequality. They're simply changing how you discuss, how you talk about, how you explain the na- the, the ex- how people experience inequality, without changing anything about their understanding of the nature of inequality, the reality of it, their psychological experience can be flipped back and forth, and you should be able to flip engagement on and off by doing that. That's the argument I'm going to make. Okay. Mm. So again... I'm a social psychologist and so I do experiments. <clears throat> so what I'm going to show you are some experiments that, that we've run, colleagues and I have run, um, with college students where we um, manipulated this frame, and I'll show you just in a second how we did that, and then we examined their engagement. That's the basic paradigm. So across, across these studies what I'm going to show you is here's how we toggled the, the frame between advantage and disadvantage, here's what the consequence of that was. That's the basic paradigm. Okay. So in one study, here's just to give you a sense, here's how we um, manipulated the frame. So we simply told students that um, there was an audit by the Department of Education, found that policy admissions were either disadvantaging black applicants or advantaging white applicants. And we also say it's inadvertent, right? So we're not saying that anybody's trying to do anything. It's an inadvertent um, bias. And either that bias was disadvantaging blacks or advantaging whites. Okay, so this is the frame, so half people had saw the disadvantaged black, half saw the advantaged white applicants, and this, these participants I'm going to show you next are all black. So these are black participants' response to this. Um, <clears throat> and so what we did is we asked them to report their GPA, and we asked them to report their self-esteem. And so what we're interested in, going back to again my definition of engagement, is the association between GPA and self-esteem. As GPA increases, the self-esteem go up, as GPA goes down, the self-esteem go down. That's the question. And we're looking at that um, as a function of whether or not they were told blacks were disadvantaged or that whites were advantaged. So that's, that's the idea. And so when we told them that blacks were disadvantaged, we get what, again, the field typically finds, that is no relationship between GPA and self-esteem. So it doesn't matter whether you have a high or low GPA, your self-esteem is basically the same when you tell them that blacks are disadvantaged. When you tell them that whites are advantaged in contrast, you get a positive association between GPA and self-esteem. That is now, when they report a higher GPA, you also see higher levels of, levels of self-esteem. Okay? And keep in mind that all we've done is simply said that this policy inadvertently advantages blacks or disadvantages whites. In both cases, they know there's a problem. They know there's inequality, they know there's injustice, we've just changed how they thought about that injustice and you get a difference in engagement as a, as a function of that.
2: <coughs> yes. You're saying that the correlation between GPA and self-esteem is uh, related to the extent to which the individuals engage in
1: academics? No, I'm saying that, that that is my definition of engagement. So my definition of engagement is the extent to which people are willing to tie their self-esteem to their performance in the domain. That is my definition of engagement. Um, in this one, well, so th- in this experiment, like everything's the same except for this. So there's no so controls for what? Like, what would you so want to control? So no, so I see. So no, these are we we can control for that, and when we do, nothing happens. Okay. But in this, I don't present that in part because they don't vary across groups. Okay. So the group the group averages across all those things are the same. Yeah. So there's this is this is not driven by pre-existing differences. So it's not as if The students who were in the um, white advantage condition were somehow different before the study than the students in the black disadvantage condition. Um, I wonder if if you really are measuring the two sides of
2: the same coin here. In one instance, you say that blacks are disadvantaged. Yeah. That is very personal, right, to them. But on the other side, you say that whites are
0: advantaged. Whites can be advantaged in relation to a lot of
2: other groups and not just blacks. Uh, So I wonder, you know, are you really?
0: Yeah.
1: Well, what I would argue is like, yeah. So there's also situations. So that's a good question. So we also do um, manipulations where we say minorities and whites. So that's all minorities, and, and that is that is um, exhaustive, right? So when we say minorities and whites, and we get the same effects. So it doesn't. It's not as if then when you say white, it's our advantage. They think they're advantage relative to someone else. That's that's not driving the effect. But that's a, that's a good question, but yeah, when we do a different manipulation, we get the same effect. And I should say that again, this is just one domain. I can, I, if you're interested, I can talk about other effects of this manipulation. This, this kind of manipulation has effects on a variety of outcomes. So it's not simply on academic engagement. How you think about inequality has consequences for how people feel about themselves. Generally, it has consequences for their willingness to support redistributive policies. So this, this kind of manipulation I've used quite a bit, and I see effects. Across domains, and and I've done all sorts of manipulate this in all sorts of ways, and you get these these effects are robust. Yeah. Um, what kind of sample is this, and how large? Yeah. So this sample. To- so this sample is um, college students. The um, I want to say. So I've run. We've run a number of studies. We always get the effects. Sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker. They tend to be. Um. um Relatively homogenous because they're all college students. Um, so, in terms of age, the distribution is like 17, 21, say. Um, I don't know what the GPA distribution is in this, in this particular sample, but um, they tend to be also a little bit better than the average college student. Does that make sense? So, this is not nationally representative, I should be clear. No it's not Stanford no 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 so it's it's a mix so I, you get the effects you can get the effects with just Stanford students you get the effect there you can also get the effect so we have a national sample it's not representative, but it's a broad cross section of of different say different sorts of institutions you get the effect in that sample as well, um, but you do you can get the effect just with Stanford students but you you don't have to use just Stanford students to get the effect um, and so again i should I should be careful here a bit i don't I want, I want to be clear what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. I don't want to necessarily say that this is going to work for everyone, but uh, what I want to say, what I want to argue, and what I think I can say confidently is that um, the psychological process is there. But there certainly are going to be factors in terms of particular person, individuals, situation that would mitigate the effect, right? So, and I don't, and I really don't have, I can't answer questions about what particular, what would mitigate the effect. What I can say confidently is that the process occurs. But I can't. I can't give you clear evidence of it occurs for this people, but not those people, because um, I, I, I don't have a nationally representative sample. But
2: it's college students, and it's their college GPAs. Yes. You're not talking about college students about
1: their GPA. No, no, it's college students. And their college GPAs. This is their current GPA. They're self-reporting. Yeah. And how big is this sample? Um, this sample, I want to say, I'm going to be approximate here, because um, we have a number of di- a number of studies, and I can't remember it this one in particular, but let's say the range is probably from 70 to 200 in, across the across the different studies. But then I'll show you other studies as well, so this is one study, I'll show you a few more. So again I'd, I'd argue that the effect is robust this is so we use different samples and we get the same effect. Um, yes? You've shown other uh, manipulation of that um, mm-hmm. I will come back to that, that's a very good question, yes, I will come back to that. So let me show you another study. So this is um, now ethnic minority students, someone I think someone asked about this question, this is a different version of the manipulation. In this case, instead of saying admissions, we tell them a standardized test, um, inadvertently disadvantaged ethnic minorities generally, or, or whites, um, and this, this sample now has Latinos and African Americans in it, so the, this is a minority sample again, and now it's, it's blacks and Latinos in the sample. Um, just to show you first, this is perceived injustice, so when you ask them, is this unjust, is there unfairness, is there racial injustice in, in um, standardized tests, it doesn't matter whether you tell them minorities are disadvantaged or whites are advantaged, they, say, they report the same degree of injustice. So it's not as if they see a problem in one case and less of a problem in the other. Um, but. <coughs> Um, when you, in this case, what we asked them is explicit. So before we looked at the association between GPA and self-esteem, here we asked them to actually explicitly tell us how, much, how important academics was to them. And these are the questions we asked them. So I feel good about myself when I do well in academic tests. Doing, into, doing well in intellectual tasks is very important to me. And I care a great deal about performing well in tests of my actual, intellectual ability. So this is now going to be the measure of engagement. Right? To what extent is academic performance important to how they feel about themselves. Okay, and this is what we find. So uh, when told that minorities are disadvantaged, you see um, a little less than the point in difference in the self-reported um, degree of engagement than when you tell them that whites are advantaged. Okay, so before, I would argue that other measure, people don't need to know that they're disengaging. When you look at the correlation between GPA and self-esteem, it's not as if people are deciding to tell you, well, my G- here's my GPA, but I don't care about it because they're reporting their self-esteem in a way that's completely separate from their GPA. So there you just see, is it the case that, does GPA predict self-esteem or not? You're not asking them, do they disengage? In this study, we're asking them, to what extent do you care? To what extent is this important to you explicitly? And even there, when you're explicitly asking them this question, simply changing the way you framed inequality changes how, how important they say this domain is to them. Yes. No, that, those, those, the populations weren't big enough to look at the difference between those two, no. Um, but I will get to another, don't, another group, so I'll look, I'm going to also show you men and women, where, and you'll see that you get the same kind of effects in a, a different social group, so I don't think it's tied to a particular social group. So it's not as if I think these effects only occur for African Americans, and that's driving the African Americans driving Latinos, or vice versa. Um, you see this across other groups. Thank you. Okay. So um, this is the manipulation we use for gender. Um, So we tell them basically it's the same things we said before, except now we say standardized math tests either disadvantaged women or advantaged men. And I should say in this there's another condition here that you don't see in which we don't explicitly say what the frame is. And this goes to your question where we leave this. um, We just say that there's an inequality between men and women. We don't say what the nature of it is. We don't describe it as advantage or disadvantage. We simply say there's an inequality. And people know what the inequality is. We don't have to tell them what it is. They they know what the nature of that is. Okay. And so what we're interested in now is this is self-reported math competence. That is, how good are you you at math? What do you think about your math ability? And self-esteem is the outcome variable. So again, we're looking now at the the correlation, the relationship between self math competence and self-esteem as the measure of engagement. Does self-esteem go up as self-reported math competence goes up? Yes? The statements that you're presenting to the students about inequality or disadvantage, yeah. are, is that presented once at the beginning of the semester, at the beginning of the year, or just prior to the answering these questions? No, it's just prior to the answering the questions. So this is one experiment. So we say we're interested in individuals' experience of academics. Here's some research on this, and then we ask them, and so in these sorts of cases, then we ask them a number of questions, not just these two questions, there are a number of questions they are asked. But only these are really relevant to these studies I'm I'm showing today. So again, um, what we're looking at here, what we're interested in, is whether or not math competence predicts self-esteem. Does self-esteem go up as self-perceived math competence goes up? When there's (coughs) no frame given, we just simply tell them there is inequality between men and women in this domain, there is no correlation between math competence and self-esteem, that is, women are not engaged in the math domain. Um, when We tell them that women are disadvantaged, you get the same effect, that is, no association between math competence and self-esteem, but when you tell them that men are advantaged, you generate a positive association between math competence and self-esteem. Okay. So again, this mirrors what I, what I showed you earlier for minorities. That is, when they focus on the advantage of the other group, that is men in this case, you see all of a sudden a willingness to um, tie their math commons to self-esteem. I shouldn't say willingness because they're not necessarily aware they're doing this. You just simply see a relationship um, generated that wasn't there previously. Um, so in this study, we were also interested in again, because remember I said this should not be a phenomenon that's simply tied to the low-status group in the domain. That if this is really about attributional ambiguity, if it really is just a cognitive process, you should be able to generate the same effects for for men and for whites. Yes. Yeah. yeah so here's <clears throat> so what I would say is these these three points are, are probably not different and so that's an interesting observation so what I would what I think that is meaningful I, I think that there is you were asking before I think there is a self-protective component of disidentifying um, so it's not as if their self-esteem just goes through the roof when they identify right this is, uh, so I'm not and I should be clear about that I'm not making an argument for making people feel better about themselves yeah. <laughs> I'm making an argument for making people care for letting, um, generating concern for the academic um, ability, right? So they should they should care about their self-esteem should be tied to the academic ability. So it's true that overall you would feel better about yourself if you did not engage. That's true. But
2: yeah, but <laughs> is this sort of tying it to I mean tying self-esteem or tying low self-esteem to academic unability or disability as opposed to
1: tying um, self-esteem. No. I don't think that's the right way to interpret it. So I would say no, in the sense that you do get a correlation, there's a main effect, but it's not as if um, it's only happening on one, on one end. It's simply that yeah you feel bad if you don't think you're good and also this is really bad for women because they also tend to think they're not very good at math. Um, so that, that is bad for their self-esteem, but I would argue in terms of their academic outcomes going forward you still get more persistence, more concern, like if they remain, if they remain engaged, that is if they maintain this tie between themselves and this domain, that's going to be better, I'm arguing, better for them academically long term, but it's not, I am not arguing that it's better for how they feel about themselves in the, in the moment, no. Yes? Um, when you measure self esteem through this process, yep. when you measure math dominance. Yes. Um,
2: there is some error bar associated with, and, and there's some sort of unit associated with the measurement, there's also some sort of error bar. Yes. Um, can you tell? Obviously, it's not on the slide, but Yeah. Yes. Each point here for example become some sort of oval. No so ellipse?
1: No so what I would say is so yes but there's the so there's variance. So these are these are obviously like group effects. So there's variance across across these lines. Yes. So there there's error in that. But I, I don't show that. Um, basically so I don't show that basically because um, the effects I'm describing to you um, are stronger than the error term associated with those, with those effects, meaning that those effects are significant. The ones I'm describing to you, those effects are, are no doubt significant. So do you sometimes see differences that are not significant in the sense that the error overwhelms what appears to be effect. an effect. So for example, the two bars that are parallel, those aren't different. Those don't differ in any way. There's no difference between no frame and female disadvantage. If you could see the, the scatter around those lines, they would be indistinguishable, that's true. Um, so the error rate or the, not the error rate, but the error term is not there, but um, the, where it's relevant, where that error term relevantly um, changes how you'd interpret the effect, I don't talk about that as being an effect. I'm only talking about the effects that, um, that are significant. Uh, okay, so this is, let me show you men now. So again, we're interested in the same thing, the relationship between math, competence and self-esteem as a function of the frame. So when there's no frame explicitly given, you see a strong positive association. And this, again, is what you see in the literature, that men, are, men engage, right? Engage in math. When you tell them that women are disadvantaged, you get the exact same thing, men engage. So this is, thus far, this is exactly what they find in the literature. Okay, But when you tell them that men are advantaged, that effect goes away. This is white men. yeah, These are white men. Hmm. So I think this is important for um, one primary reason, and I can talk about other reasons that th- other things that are going on here that I think are important, but primarily it's important because it suggests that disengagement does not represent the dysfunction of the low- status group. Right, That high-status groups, the groups that are performing well, also engage in the same processes or are, are susceptible to the same processes that generate disengagement in the low-status group. And I'm arguing that the reason you don't see it, typically, is because we do not talk about inequality in terms of advantage. That we do not, when we talk about inequality, and I say this for people who care about it, for people like me, for people who really are interested in disparities broadly, that what we focus on is the disadvantaged group. And we're and I think this is changing a bit in some disciplines, but there's much less focus on the fact that the biases that create disparities also advantage the dominant group. And when you tell them that, they're affected by it. Right? And that's what you see here. Okay. So again, another thing I should point out is, and I've said this already, and someone asked about this earlier, the default frame seems to be disadvantaged. So this goes along with the comment I was making a second ago. If you don't say anything, people assume that the nature of the inequality is that the subordinate group, the low status group, the group that is not performing well, is disadvantaged. They don't think automatically in terms of what the people, the high status group is, has some sort of advantage. They don't think in that way. And, that, and, and I'm going to get ahead of myself a bit, but that shields the dominant group from the moral responsibilities and from the psychological burdens associated with the biases that they benefit from. That's what I'm going to argue. And that's why you see in this case engagement. Both, when you don't say anything about inequality, but they know it exists, and you tell them that women are disadvantaged among men because they think that's about women. Okay. All right. So <coughs> I'm gonna now. I'll show you one one more set of data, and this will be for whites. Um, whites are gonna be a little bit different than uh, men, women, and minorities in that whites. <coughs> um, tend not to identify explicitly to the same extent as minorities, men or women. Meaning that whites um, are less likely to say that being white is a part of who I am that what happens to white people says something about what happens to me. Like they don't, they're less likely to um, acknowledge or feel as if their, their fate is tied to the fate of the group. So even when whites will say yes there's advantage, the reason that sometimes that doesn't affect them Because they say, yeah, whites are advantaged, but that's not relevant to me, even though I am white. Okay, so for whites, so let me—I'll just make this one point. So for whites, we have to examine also their their willingness to identify in combination with the inequality, because again, the argument is that inequality framing is affecting engagement because you think that it says something about you, but we're giving the inequality frame as a function of the group. So if you don't feel tied to the group, then that even if I tell you that your group is advantaged it shouldn't affect you if you don't feel like that has any bearing on you so you have to feel identified and so in this next study I'll show you um, whites engagement as a function of their racial identity and the frame. Yes. Um, that statement is a statement about identity as a whole in the in, in the society, so this it's not that's not domain specific. So um, evidence shows very very um, strongly that minor, ethnic minorities identify at higher, at a higher rate or at uh, higher du- higher levels than do whites across all across domain. Also, it's not, yeah, so, no, when I say ethnic minority, I should say, and this is, the language is a little bit problematic, so what I mean here is not, when I say minority, I'm saying ethnic minorities, but I also that obviously parallels, in this case, political minority, and that's really, I mean, so, in the, obviously in the United States, the American minority majority um, is almost completely correlated with, it's almost correlated one with political majority minority, but what I really mean is, like, the high status group. So whites as a high status group, what my majority in, in the sense of both numerical, that's not important from my perspective, but it is important in terms of status.
2: So, for example, in a town like, um, like a random local town like, say
1: Cupertino. Yep. Um,
2: where I think the, I think there's perception of white disadvantage.
1: Yes. Yes. N-
2: not against African Americans, but against.
1: Mm-hmm. against Asians. Right. So, how, how would that how would that play out? That I think that, so I would say that if, in that case, if they really felt like they were disadvantaged, then again, because none of this is not, none of my arguments are about race. So I don't think of race as as an explanatory concept, right? And so in the sense that, like, if they really, yeah, yeah, no, I understand. So if they really perceive themselves as a a low-status minority, Mm -hmm. then they should behave just like any other low-status minority. There's nothing special about being white, but it's just, and I'm taking for granted a particular social context, but if that social context shifted, like I don't, there's nothing about whites per se, and that's in part. That's that really is a deep part of what I'm arguing. There's nothing special about the psychological process of whites. It really is about your understanding of your place in the system and your perception of that system that generates these effects. That so the same psychological processes that you see in minorities play out for whites. In this case, it's. Um, happening when they see themselves as advantage, but if they really thought of themselves as a disadvantage, when you frame it as disadvantage, you would get the same sort of effect you get for minorities, if you framed it as Asians' advantage, then that would go away presumably just like it does for ethnic minorities now, if they saw themselves as the low status group. Okay, So (coughs) again for whites, um, this is the manipulation we use, this goes back to a manipulation, one of the ones we used earlier. Um, admissions policies. So we tell them that it disadvantages blacks or advantages white applicants. And again, here I'm looking at their engagement both as a function of the frame and their identity. Because for the inequality to be relevant to whites, you, well, t- relevant to anyone, you have to both think the inequality is about your group and feel tied to that group. Okay, so I'm going to show you. This is. Self reported engagement. So, this is the scale I use last, the the, the second scale I use for minorities. That is, they are telling us academics is important to them or not. They're saying that academics is an important part of how I feel about myself. Explicitly, they're telling us that. And I'm looking at that as a function of identity and the frame. So, first, the low identifiers, it doesn't matter how you frame the inequality, right? They report the same degree of engagement. They don't identify, it does not matter what you tell them about the inequality but if they identify, when you tell them that whites are advantaged, they re- report lower levels of engagement than when you tell them that blacks are disadvantaged. so in essence, whites show the same effect as minorities, but you only see that effect among whites that believe that their outcomes are tied to the outcomes of the group. And how did you measure white identity? So we have, a, there's a, a number of scales. In our scale, um, we use a four-item scale, and the items are items like um, what happens to my racial group, as a whole is important to my life outcomes. So this is a, what we use is a common FATE measure here, um, but you, we also have done the same thing with centrality measures, and centrality measures are a little bit different than FATE measures in that centrality measures ask you not if what happens to your group happens to you, but ask you how important is the membership in the group to how you think about who you are. That's centrality. So you get the same kind of effects with FATE and with centrality. Any other questions about this? Okay. Yes. About the, going back to the slope on the women and math? Yes. And how the,
2: the frame that ties their self esteem to, to their competence? Yes. Seems to,
1: it, it creates a relationship, but it yeah. also Um, it, it seems to almost have the opposite effect. Um, the way the are and then the so, so, okay, so there's, but the problem in part, yes, that's a good observation. Not the problem, but there's other effects here. So, um, in essence, what you see is also a main effect of identity. So, whites that identify report lower levels of esteem, generally. Oh, yeah, okay. And that, that's, so that's a part of the effect in the graph, and so that's why it looks depressed there. Oh. Okay. Um all right, so conclusions. One, I think that um this is this is just a description. So inequality framed in self-relevant term causes individuals to disengage. And the important part of that I I, I want to argue is that inequality can be seen as self-relevant or not. And um the way I, I I like to think about it, but no one seems to find helpful, so we'll see if this is different here, is that Inequality really is a property of a system, and by that I mean if you're in a, just think of a classroom as a system. Like if there's if a one person or two people are disadvantaged in that classroom, everyone is affected by it. Then not inequality is not located in individuals, individual actors. Inequality is located in the system. So that means to the extent that anyone is advantaged or disadvantaged, everyone is affected by it, because they're all connected in some way in the system. But that people don't see inequality as a property of systems. People see inequality or inequity as a property of people, right? So they say that are you advantaged? Are you disadvantaged? Am I advantaged? Am I am I disadvantaged? They see inequality as something that is in- inheres is a part of the person and not a part of the s- the system. Not, and I'm arguing that that has important implications for people's response to inequality and. It, should, it, it says that we should be careful about how we, we talk about it, because when we talk about inequality, we're providing information that tells people, what, what's the relevance to, of this to, to me? Um, and in these studies, what I, I've, I've simply shown, I believe, or I'd I, I, I like to claim anyway, is that when you think inequality is about you in an academic domain, you're less likely to tie your sense of self to, that, to academics. Right? So you disengage when you think that inequality in that domain is about you. Um, So women and minorities disengage in response to evidence of the disadvantage and men and whites disengage in in response to evidence of their advantage. Um, Also disadvantage appears to be the default frame and as I said earlier I think this is important because it it really does um, change individuals willingness not only to engage but more importantly from my perspective um, um, their willingness to think about their responsibilities as regards bias in the system. Meaning that if you don't think the inequality is about you, then you also have no responsibility to do anything about it. And 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 I don't mean that simply in terms of um, you don't care because it doesn't affect you. I really mean that even if you're someone who feels like inequality is wrong and bad, you can say, I have some moral responsibility because I'm a part of the system. Or you can say it's bad that that person is discriminated against. Somebody should do something about that. And when you, and there's a difference between doing something about that out of a sense of charity and doing something, out, out of the, doing something about that out of a sense of moral responsibility because you are a part of the system and you benefit from the system. Those things, I'm gonna argue, are, are, are different. And so the fact that um, inequality is typically thought of in terms of disadvantage absolves high status groups, whites and men, from the responsibility of having to acknowledge that they benefit from the bias, because it's a bias in the system, and also um, from the moral responsibility that comes with the benefits associated with that bias. I'd argue that they are removed and absolved of, of that responsibility. In contrast, minority groups, it, when, while acknowledging it and while maybe using the sense of disadvantage to cope with that with inequality, they still have to k- take on the moral and psychological burdens associated with a system-wide inequality as if it was their own.
2: Yeah. How do you suppose those two green bullet points affect um, perceptions of inequality between individuals and corporations? Because
1: mm-hmm.
2: and really over the past 30 years, yeah. the, the, the landscape of uh, <coughs> equity has, has really stayed the same in the middle class, which mm-hmm. has of course gotten mm-hmm. smaller, mm-hmm. and the, the, the underclasses. But, um, the 500 billionaires in the Fortune 500 yep. have made huge strides. Yes. And uh, your colleagues in the business school um, seem to think nothing of allowing them to have tax havens where they, yep. you know, reduce their their <laughs> tax bracket from what 35 percent to an average of around 23 yep. uh-huh. percent, recognizing all of their international income in yep. their tax haven or some other tax shelters. So, <clears throat> if women and minorities disengage in response to evidence of disadvantage, does that mean that only men and whites have the have the uh, um, likelihood of advocating for a multilateral tax
1: haven treaty? Uh, Um, So there's a couple things about that. One, you're crossing domains in a way that I I don't I don't know that I would um, that I could theoretically support um, given what yeah (laughs) Um, uh, so what I would say is so I'll answer that in I guess maybe two parts. One, I think you're asking a question about class. and that's how I understand it, anyway. In part, and, and less about ethnicity and gender. Um, and I would argue the reason you don't see these kind of clear effects. I, I'm tempted to show you something else, but I don't know if it's if it's going to be more confusing or enlightening. But um, so there's so, okay. So there's okay. So uh, you like let's think of it in terms of redistributive policy. So put it like I'm now. I'm going to step away from academic engagement for a bit. Okay, so. Again, my my take home on the academic engagement is that when you see, think about inequality as something about you, right? There's reasons that you wouldn't not be trust, you wouldn't trust your outcomes or your abilities to be a pure reflection of of you, and therefore you don't tie your sense of self to that domain, right? That that's my takeaway on academic engagement. When you believe the inequality is about you, don't engage. And so now in what you ask me, I am really interested in the question you're asking me, and that is another consequence of the inequality frame. So that, and this is what I was getting to, I'm sure you asked because of things I was saying about the dis- default frame, and in terms of the burdens and responsibilities associated with inequality. And so you can think about that, and I do think about that, not just in terms of ethnics and, minor- and minorities and whites and men, but in terms of broadly, like it's really about inequality and who's responsible for it. Um, and what you basically need in part is some for, you, for your question, what you need is some class consciousness that, I argue, does not exist in the United States, at least not among the people who are not elite. Like That may exist among the elites, I'm less clear about that, but it almost certainly does not exist among the middle class and working class.
2: There's a lot of public relations effort to prevent that kind of consciousness
1: from existing. Right, and I would say that, and this is another thing, and, and if you come, I'm, giving, I'm going to give another talk in May where I, this will be the primary focus, and it won't be class exactly, but it will be um, hierarchy maintenance. So how, is, how do people on top, and it'll, the focus will be on how people on top create and maintain the hierarchy. And what I argue is that it's a dynamic process, right? So it's, a lot of work focuses on the buy-in of the low-status group, right? So to have a stable hierarchy. So now, I'm, again, this is, I'm done with the engagement thing, and I'm going on to something else. So if you have a question about engagement, <laughs> do you do have a question about engagement? Um, I had a question kind of about pedagogical implications. Okay. That yes. Really yes. What do I do? Uh, <laughs> this
2: knowledge that is, that is you know,
1: deep. Uh, deep <laughs> kind of yeah. So I think so. Here's again, like, keep in mind that I did say it was multifaceted and multidetermined. Um I think that, in part, what you have to do, or what you, what may help, I don't know, if this is what you have to do, but what help, given the the results I'm presenting, is can, is convince them not that there's not an issue, right? Because there is an issue, and people aren't stupid. Right, like people can look around the world and they understand there's something, there's something out there and it's relevant to them. But help them understand it in a way that that is that's less about them and more about the system, right, or more about other people. So yes, there are disparities, and yes, those disparities are likely to affect you. And yes, you will have to work harder to get to where you want to be compared, if you're comparing yourself to people who are advantaged. But if you, if you want to succeed, that's what it takes and that's the nature of the, the reality. And I think, and this goes back to this is what I, I started with, this is what my mom told me. That thing was the right thing, right? It, it didn't feel good. So I think maybe you, you have to go away from worrying about telling someone what will make them comfortable and, and happy to hear and say what is going to be useful. So again, going the data that people, um, on women, people pointed out that the self-esteem was not higher, right? The engagement increases, but self-esteem is not higher and so I, I do think you might have to be willing to tell to um, confirm something they wish were, were not true so that, yeah that is true but also let them know that this that, that does not mean that there's something about you there's something bad about the system that is true but it's not necessarily about you.
0: So, so Brian this seems to raise the question of the convergence between the theory your arguments and the stereotype threat right because the stereotype threat the premise under that is that the controlling narrative is about the disadvantage or the yep. negative stereotypes of the group. And you seem to be, your data suggests to me that an approach pedagogically might be, although it could have some uh, a kind of a flattening effect for those in the advantage group, is to talk about the cumulative advantage for high status groups. Yes. So that you flip
1: the frame. Yeah. The frame yeah.
0: And instead of when we teach about inequality, because I find that it becomes symbolically violent in the classroom for women and ethnic minorities to continue to hear yeah. that they're on the bottom. Yes. But if you flip how you teach, and because a lot of my students don't know how whites came to be at the top of the social hierarchy yeah. and the cumulative advantage. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Although the problem is, is, the first question I tend to get is, am I supposed to feel guilt?
1: Oh, from the white students. The white and I always students. say, like, I, no, I don't want you to feel guilty. I just want you to do something about it. <laughs> I don't like, I mean, I, I really like, I, I'm like, this is not meant to make anybody feel bad. And I, and I will say, like, look in this data. These are just basic psychological processes, right? right. And there's also a, a social historical, um, these things, these things are not about you. You didn't, I'm not saying that you did anything. You may be doing things now that you shouldn't be. Right. But I'm not saying that what I'm talking about appears something that you caused. But at the same time, recognize that you are a member of that you are participating in this system. Recognize what your place in that system is, and think about what responsibilities you have as a function of that. Like, I I mean, you can manage that emotionally however you like. But I'm not I'm not a counselor. (laughs) I am a psychologist, but I don't deal with people's personal problems. (laughs) But I I do think it's incumbent upon everyone in the system to say, like, what is this system a fair system? And if it's not, what are my responsibilities and what is my location in the system? And be clear about that. But that. And I feel like when people bring up the guilt thing, that's literally what I tell them. Like, I don't, it's okay, you don't have to feel guilty. But you should be doing something about it, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have um, kind of two questions, also going off the of different questions. The first is that, after a little bit of an individualistic solution for us, Which one is?
2: Mm-hmm. Kind of also going off stereotypes that the sort of intervening solutions seem to go off of either changing views in the environment, yeah, threats, so kind of changing what that environment, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. looks like and how students experience it, or this kind of, you know, self affirmation.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, um So I do think that I don't. I guess what I would say is like I don't see the advantage narrative as necessarily very individualistic. I think of it as if you think of it as a narrative and as a social narrative, then I don't think. I mean, I don't think that is individualistic. But it is a hearts and minds strategy. Um, But I don't. I don't know of any other. I really don't have other strategies that are not hearts and minds strategies. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fine. I'm just uh, well. If it is or isn't, I don't know. I just don't have anything else. (laughs) I mean, so I really do think that these, because again, keep in mind that um, these processes are psychological and so the environment has to change. Something about people's experience of the environment has to change to change the processes. But, de- but they're the processes that I'm focusing on, are there are other processes that may really be about hard material resources, right, and then it's, uh, and so, but that's, the, and those processes are also important, but I don't, I don't, I don't really think that I have a lot to say ab- about that. Is there another question? Uh, yes. Yeah? My understanding of
2: student literature is that if you link sort of your self-perception to this achievement and you perceive some sort of disadvantage for your group in the field, then you're actually going to underperform. Mm-hmm. So it seems like wouldn't you need sort of a two-step solution here? Because if you encourage, say, me to link my self-esteem to my math performance and I go and take a math test... Mm-hmm. but I also
1: understand that someone
2: else has an advantage over me. Yeah. I'm going to care more and therefore
1: maybe perform even worse than I would have? If no, I, was I, was d- I don't think so. So what I would argue is that the stereotype threat um, effect is predicated on understanding the inequity in terms of disadvantage. So like well, the reason that you're concerned is you th- you're thinking of yourself as disadvantaged, mm-hmm. or you, in a sense, and I, that, that, let me backtrack from that just a, a step, that you think that other people are thinking of you in terms of disadvantaged. Right, the frame, the frame that is required for stereotype threat is disadvantage. Like you would not get, I would argue, would not get stereotype threat if you, were fo- if you were thinking that inequality has nothing to do with me. That's about them. Like that you shouldn't get it. You shouldn't get stereotype threat. Because think of it this way, like the difference between my, what I'm talking about in stereotype threat is the, the perceiver. So in stereotype threat, the argument is that you, you're concerned about how others perceive you. And that has a psychological consequence for your, your performance. In my, in my work, I'm talking about how you perceive yourself in the environment. But if you have an advantage frame and you extend that to perceive other perceivers as well, then the stereotype threat should go away. Does that, does that make sense? Because, again, stereotype threat assumes that what's the, the, what drives it is your, your fear or concern that other people might use this, the, the lens of your group to evaluate you. Um, yeah so the problem okay so I don't know how we can I don't know how deep I should go into this because the stereotype threat literature I argue I'm gonna argue is a little bit murky now so it's broad so if I don't know how, how much of it you've read but there are there's not one it's not a unitary phenomenon is what I would argue and so you're talking about an aspect of it that is not was not the original version of stereotype threat so there are multiple when you talk about stereotype threat there really are multiple threats and there's a paper that you can read that that actually um, that um, categorizes the different sorts of threat by Shapiro Newberg they have a paper that that does this and so some of the threats are about how you see yourself some of the threats are about concerns about how others see you Um, some of the threats are about confirming your your own fears some of the threats are about confirming other people's negative views sometimes it's about confirming their negative views of you view. sometimes it's about confirming their negative views about the group so you, so you, i mean so it really is this broad this multifaceted broad sense of threat and so what i was talking about was the what i understood to be the original version of the argument but there are versions of the argument that, that what i'm suggesting doesn't work for but i don't think of that as stereotype threat although again that that literature is is broad Yeah. It it sounds a lot like uh the concept of privilege as it's used in sort of mm. social justice education. Yes. So I'm trying to think are you comfortable with that mapping? I, I that's what I talk I talk about as privilege very frequently. Invisible yes. privilege. Uh it's not invisible to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um I think that, I, I really do think the invisibility part, and this goes to the, a bit to the, the, the question the gentleman was asking me about class, is that the invisibility is, is, is not accidental, which suggests that it's not truly invisible, right? There's a difference between um, throwing a towel over something and, pretend, and pretending like it's not there and it being invisible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's more the former. I think that it is visible, it's uncomfortable, and it's um, inconvenient for the dominant group. And therefore, there's actual, and I, I have some research on this. There's effort, it, there's effort expended to make it less um, salient than it actually probably is. So like, the people are aware of it, and they're managing it.
0: Well, Professor
2: Lowry, your job has been well done. <laughs> okay, thank you. So
1: thanks. Much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.